Well, Christmas time can be a challenging time for preachers. And that's because throughout the year, we've got a full 66 books of the Bible, about 1,200 chapters of material to choose from and preach from. But for Christmas, we have about 10. About 10 chapters to choose from, if that. And the passages that we get to choose from are fairly well-known, very familiar. Some of you would probably be able to quote them from memory to me. So sometimes it feels like we're just retreading old, familiar ground over and over. But that said, it's amazing how every year, Scripture shows us fresh and wonderful things. God's Word is truly inexhaustible. We'll never run out of things to learn from it, even in those that we know, those parts that we know very well. And to be honest, having our eyes reopened to these truths again and again is often exactly what we need. We need to hear the old, old story repeatedly. We need to have our hearts recaptured by the truths of his love and mercy and the truth of God. Today, I'm going to take us back to probably the most familiar Christmas passage of all. In this Christmas season, though, I've been especially struck afresh by two details of the Christmas story. First, that God came to earth as a baby. Not as a powerful or influential man or woman, but as a weak, powerless, completely dependent infant. Second, I was struck by the shocking humility that Jesus had to come in this way to earth. This passage I want to tur- uh, us to turn to together actually shows us both these incredible truths and more. So please, if you would open to Luke chapter 2 with me. Luke chapter 2, that's on page 857 in the Pew Bibles. Know what you're thinking? I had so much fun going through Luke the last three years, I couldn't stay away for long. <laughs> So find your place there in Luke 2, and then I'll invite you to pray with me, that God would open our eyes, open our hearts once again to this familiar, but really world-shaking, history-altering story. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word once again, we do pray that, that you would be softening our hearts, that you'd be opening our eyes, preparing us to hear from you, not from me, but from you. Pray that your spirit would be speaking into each one of our hearts today. That we would hear you, that we would see you. And that when we hear you, that we would listen. That our lives would be changed. Help us to repent. Help us to be convicted. Help us to be encouraged today through what you have to say to us. And may we praise you all the more for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't you love, don't you just love big interruptions to your life? You know the times when your life is just rolling along with routines and habits and plans, and then you get thrown a curveball, and your, which makes your plans just veer off wildly. Maybe an unexpected trip to see family for various reasons, or an unexpected search for employment. We weren't expecting that. Or the failing of a course that you needed to pass. Or a 
surprise pregnancy or funeral or falling in love when you least expected to or maybe having your love be rejected. They don't need to be bad interruptions. They could be good or bad. Some of them can be quite good. But we don't tend to enjoy having our life just interrupted, just our routines disrupted, our schedules scrapped. For We don't like dropping everything for major life adjustments. Well, try this one on for size. Okay? Imagine getting a letter in the mail tomorrow from the government. And when you open the letter... It tells you that as of tomorrow, you'll need to take a trip. You need to take a trip, and you need to drop your work, drop your school, drop your exams, wherever they're at, okay? doesn't matter if you have important meetings or deadlines coming up. You have to pack up your belongings, have to pack up your family, get in the car. You've got to be in Vancouver, B.C. by this time next week. Oh, and you can't afford to fly, Okay? doesn't matter if you've got an impending wedding. doesn't matter if you're expecting a baby. doesn't matter what you've got planned with your family over the next little while. You've got to go. And you can't make an appeal to be excused either. If you complain, well, boo-hoo for you. <laughs> if, you insi- if you refuse to go, you could be imprisoned, maybe executed. Oh, and it might not be a very quick trip to Vancouver either. You may be required to stay there a few months or even a couple years. You likely wouldn't get paid while you're there. In fact, the whole reason that you're required to go is actually to pay your taxes. A surprise trip would be far more than just an interruption, wouldn't it be? This would be a a burdensome, difficult, demanding disruption of your entire life. You're like, well, that situation doesn't sound very realistic. Well, no. It's not very realistic in our day and age. This sounds like the summons and sequestering of a jury duty from hell. (laughs) However, this situation is actually quite similar to what Joseph and Mary had to do before Jesus was born. The story of Jesus' birth in Luke 2 begins this way. If you look with me in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. If you don't get what's going on here, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, decided that he wanted accurate taxation information. He wanted to be sure that he was getting every last cent that he was owed from everyone in his empire. So he made literally everyone in the known world register in a census. And you thought censuses today were controversial. Imagine how this went over in that day. Listen up, everyone. Caesar, whom, whom you love, wants more of your money. So he has commanded you to go and get registered in your hometown, and then we'll collect your raised taxes. 
that sound like fun? For many people, obeying this decree would have meant uprooting their entire lives. For people in Palestine, this meant traveling to whichever town you came from. This would have been a hugely unpopular decree. But all we know is that people obeyed. Not that they had any choice. But verse 3 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Among those weary and likely annoyed travelers were some familiar names. Look in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. If you know biblical geography, Nazareth was in the northern part of Israel in Galilee, and Bethlehem was in the south in Judea near Jerusalem. If you're confused by the going up to Bethlehem, it's really talking about elevation. People would go up towards Judea, up a mountain. But it would have taken several days for them to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem on foot, which likely they were. Mary maybe had a donkey. We don't know. But they're on foot. Anyway, they lived in Nazareth, but they were required by imperial law to travel to Bethlehem because Joseph had some famous bloodlines. If you notice that, it says his ancestor was King David. So they had to travel to the city of David for one humongous family reunion. A couple more details here to notice. It says Joseph and Mary were betrothed to be married which likely means that they were considered as married in the sight of the law, but they hadn't yet consummated the marriage. Matthew 1 explains that more. But if you think about the picture of, of these, this betrothed couple, one of Mary being expecting, this would have been quite the scandalous sight to those who knew Joseph and Mary because they both claimed to have never had premarital relations. But the proof was in the pudding, or should I say in the pregnancy. Really, guys? You haven't done anything wrong. You're pregnant. That doesn't just happen. Okay? Being only betrothed and being with child should have never gone together. Little did most people know the miraculous story behind this situation. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Joseph and Mary knew the truth, and most people didn't, or they didn't believe it. But also, Mary wasn't merely with child. At this point, she was very with child. She was ready to pop. I saw a funny picture this week I'm going to put on the screen, which tells you when it's okay to ask a woman if she's expecting. <laughs> In other words, never. <laughs> but there was no need to question whether or not Mary was pregnant. You'd be able to tell. And she's probably right about the final stage there, because we know she gave birth very soon after this. No question, she was pregnant. Now, we might wonder, with all these details, why does Luke give us all these details? Some of them don't seem that necessary. Why talk about a census registration? 
Why so many names of geographical locations? Why mention Augustus and Quirinius? I mean, when was the last time you heard a Christmas carol about them? Augustus and Quirinius, how awful is your census? (laughs) Well, the details that Luke includes here are important for a few reasons. First, they set the stage for the story that's to follow of Jesus' birth. They explain when and where and why things happened, how they did. Second, these details firmly establish this story in history. This happened in a, at a real time, in a real place, to real people with real issues. Luke was giving an accurate historical account of Jesus from the very beginning of his life. But beyond these things, there's something else I believe these verses tell us. They tell us something about God, who hasn't even been mentioned yet. Here's the first point I'm going to give you. The time and circumstances of Jesus' birth reveal God's preparation for it. The time and circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth show us how God prepared things for his birth. The time and circumstances of Jesus' birth reveal God's preparation for his birth. This wasn't some spur-of-the-moment plan for God. It wasn't spontaneous. God had planned on it since before time began, and he had perfectly prepared everything for Jesus' coming to earth. Some of you are probably expecting some guests to visit you over the Christmas holidays. What do you do to get ready for their arrival? Clean the house, make the guest bed, put out fresh towels, buy whatever food you need to feed them, cook the turkey... Pretend like you have your life in order. (laughs) Well, God wasn't preparing for visitors. He was actually sending a visitor, and yet God was the one who made all the preparations for that visitor's arrival. Let me ask, who do you think inspired Caesar to call for a census? A census that would send Jesus' earthly parents scampering to the exact town they needed to be to give birth to the Messiah. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler. Who do you think gave prophets words like this to prophesy centuries before? Who do you think had guided the ancestral lines of Joseph and Mary so they would meet just so at just the right time? Who do you think performed the miracle of a virgin conceiving a child? Who do you think sent angels to announce this to both Joseph and Mary separately? Who do you think was now forming a little fearfully and wonderfully made body inside Mary's womb? Knitting it together. The answer to all these questions is, of course, God. No one else could have done this. He was constantly behind the scenes. He was directing the production on stage. He was orchestrating the symphony. He was authoring the story. 
And the perfect time had finally come to send his son into the world. Galatians 4, 4 to 5 tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You notice that first part? The fullness of time had come. God in his power and his wisdom had prepared empires and governors and languages and edicts and prophecies and genealogies and geographies and cities and people and marriages and pregnancies and so much more. Just for this time. Now that deserves us being way more than impressed. That deserves our adoration, our worship. Christmas story, when you stop and think about it, it clearly implies immense power on God's part. Sovereign power. But it also shows a remarkable contrast to that. Because the next glimpse we get of God is not of a history-shaping sovereign king, but of a weak and powerless child who was born and laid in a manger. Look with me in verse 6. It says, And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now these The verses are said so matter-of-factly, but they really are astounding. I don't know if you could imagine a more humble, unimpressive birth. And maybe that's the point. I think we already sense something awesome about Jesus here. From the very first breaths he took, and that is that the timing and conditions of Jesus' birth reveal his humility for us. The timing and conditions of Jesus' birth reveal his great humility, which he showed for us. However, Mary imagined giving birth to Jesus. I guarantee you it wasn't like this. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. Hey, think back over Mary's story. Put yourself in her shoes. You'd been visited by an angel, a heavenly warrior, before even becoming pregnant. You know for a fact that this baby in your room is super special, historically special. You know that God has placed special favor on you and your baby. You know that God has a special plan to save his people through this baby. Surely, God would have a special time and a special place that you'd give birth to him. It likely happened after nine and a half months of a pleasant pregnancy, right on time, right on the due date. Okay, it likely take place in your home, in your own home, on a comfortably prepared bed. Your doting new husband would be at your side to help wherever he's needed. The best doctor in the countryside would be at your feet to catch the baby with all your closest family and friends gathered nearby to support you. And then you hear the decree that you have to go 
Bethlehem. Away from your home, away from your family, away from all that's familiar to you. And then you arrive in Bethlehem, and you can't even find a single guest room anywhere. You get offered the stable, a barn, with a pile of hay for your bed. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. How in the world is this God's plan for his son to enter the world? I've told this story before, but a few years back when our first son was born, he made his entrance into the world at the most inconvenient time. We had scheduled a move from our old apartment into our new home on a day in June, about a week and a half before our son was due to be born. But when moving day came, about six hours before we were to pick up a moving truck, Angela's water broke. I said, you've got to be kidding me. The timing couldn't possibly have been worse. No, no, why not any other day? Why this one? And I'd imagine Joseph probably thought the same, right? When the time, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. No, no, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right place. Talk about an inopportune time. We just got here. We haven't even found a proper bed. Now, these days, home births are all the rage for a lot of people. Giving birth at home with a a midwife, and I don't understand the appeal of that very much. I prefer the hospital with doctors and nurses all around. (laughs) But do you know what isn't all the rage today and never has been? Barn births. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard anyone say, you know, I would love to have my baby on straw (laughs) with stinky and noisy animals all around. To top this all off, it says that all Mary had to clothe her baby in were rough strips of swaddling rags. Wrong time, wrong place, wrong circumstances. So here's the question. Why would Jesus come to earth like this? With this spectacularly bad timing. With the, in these Horrible birth conditions. There's only one answer. Jesus was displaying his profound humility. He came from the perfect glories of heaven to the dirt of earth. Joel Beakey says, Christ could have come from no higher position and he could have descended to none lower. Charles Spurgeon said, God's omnipotence cometh down to man's feebleness, and infinite majesty stoops to man's infirmity. In Christ, the infinite became an infant. Jesus didn't come in power and glory or pomp and circumstance. He came in weakness, lowliness, the most humble circumstances imaginable. 
Why would Jesus even humble himself in this way in the first place? He didn't need to, after all. No one would enjoy humbling themselves to even a fraction of this degree. But Jesus humbled himself for two primary reasons. First, to glorify and obey his Father. And second, to love and save us. That's why he showed humility. Luke gives us about the the strangest birth announcement you'll ever see. What do we put on birth announcements today? You know what we send out when we have a child? We want everyone to know. Maybe on Facebook now, but we put the name and the gender and the weight, things like that, right? The health of, it's like, it's a girl or it's a boy. Give the name, give, give the weight. Say, after a long labor, you know, mother and baby are doing great. What does Luke tell us about the birth of Jesus? No details about the labor. No vitals like weight or size or anything. No health status. We don't even get a name. At least we know it was a boy. So why doesn't Luke give us more than this? Well, this whole passage, I believe, including the simplicity of Luke's announcement, is meant to emphasize something. It's meant to emphasize the extreme lowness and humbleness of Jesus' birth, his humility. A humility that Christ would display not only in his birth, but over the rest of his life as well. Philippians 2 6 says, Though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it continues, Therefore, so, because of his awesome humility, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We should bow our knees and praise our humble Lord Jesus. The humility he showed for us. And we should also seek to follow his example. That beautiful passage I just read from Philippians actually begins right before that by telling us as much. It says in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, so on from there. As humans, we naturally object to ever humbling ourselves. To love others, to prefer others, to serve others, to associate with the lowly. But when we truly understand Christ's coming, that changes things. Joel Beakey again explains, without the example of Christ, we might fabricate all sorts of ways to minimize the call to be humble. 
But in his coming to earth, Christ exposes all of our objections to humility as wicked pride. Faced with the demands of humility, we can never say to God, you don't know what it's like to stoop this low. Christ came to demonstrate true humility. The timing and conditions of Jesus' birth reveal his humility for us. This story's familiarity, we can easily overlook or ignore this amazing truth. But that's not the final truth I want us to notice in this passage. There's one more contrast here in Luke 2. This time between God's preparedness for Christ's birth and our unpreparedness for it. Mary and Joseph were ready. Ready or not. The rest of the world wasn't. Here's what I think we can notice and learn from here, that the untimely accommodations of Jesus' birth revealed our unreadiness for him. The untimely accommodations of Jesus' birth revealed our unreadiness for him. By untimely accommodations, I'm referring to their housing in a stable instead of an inn or anywhere else nice. Luke adds that one little interesting detail at the very end of verse 7. He says, She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, you may picture something in your minds that isn't necessarily there. Because we all imagine that Joseph and Mary were turned away from the inn by a a frazzled, bustling, inconsiderate innkeeper. But if you read scripture carefully, and an innkeeper is never mentioned once. Now, was there an innkeeper? I'm sure there was. But was he or she rude or over-busy or unsympathetic? Who knows? It's all speculation. All we do know, all that we're told, is that there was no vacancy at the inn. There was every room, every bed was taken. The town wasn't prepared for a massive pilgrimage of David's descendants descending on them. The inn was inundated. There was no place for them there, or anywhere else it seems. So all we know is Joseph and Mary had to find shelter wherever they could. The stable. So, was it Bethlehem's fault that they weren't ready for the birth of this most significant baby ever? No, not really. How were they supposed to know that this poor pregnant woman was about to fulfill some of their oldest prophecies? But the fact remains, it's recorded in Scripture, they weren't ready. They, there was no place for Jesus in the inn. There was no grand welcome for him except to lowly shepherds outside the town. Almost everyone was completely unaware of what was going on down the road. Essentially, this was the first of many rejections that Jesus would face in his lifetime. This was a foreshadowing of Jesus' later words, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We didn't 
welcome him into our world. We gave him no home. But worse than that, you continue with the story of Jesus. By and large, we didn't accept him, we didn't listen to him, and we didn't follow him. Instead, we eventually killed him. Sealed his body in a guarded tomb. Of course, that didn't really work at stopping him. But again and again, what we see from Christ is humility, humility, humility. And what we see from us is hostility, hostility, hostility. Can you sense his love for you? Love that would drive him from heaven to earth to die for you? If you can, I hope that this fact shakes you to your core. That God loved you this much. That even when we weren't ready for him, when we were lost in our own lives, and we were oblivious to his love. We were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God's throne. He still came for us. If you sense his love today, I pray that you wouldn't ignore it, that you wouldn't reject it. I'd urge you to leave your sinful ways and run to the manger. Run to the cross. Believe that Jesus died and rose again. And let him clean up your heart and make your heart his home. This stands as a challenge to all of us. Is there a place for Christ in our lives? And not just any old place or a sliver of the place. He wants all of us. So is there a place for Christ Jesus in our home? Are we truly living for him or for ourselves these days? Do we worship him? Do we hear from him? Do we obey him? Do we serve him? Do we speak of him? Or is our busyness or our other passions pushing him to the periphery? May we, we might not even notice that we're doing it like the people of Bethlehem? Are our holiday traditions, our families, our friends, our fun, our work, our education, our money, our health, our hockey, more important to us than he is? May we never be like the seed that was scattered among the thorns in Jesus' parable. You remember that? Where uh, we allow Jesus and his word to be choked out of our lives. May it never be said of us that there was no place for him in our hearts. Some of us may need to do some serious reshaping of our lives to let Christ reclaim his place. But take his words from Jesus' later words from John 14 as an encouragement. He says there, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home 
with him. Get that? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There could be no greater blessing than that. There is no prepared place for Jesus in Bethlehem, except that there was one, the manger. See, the stable and its feeding trough were prepared precisely for the birth of Christ. It may have been unseemly and seemed untimely, but this is exactly what God had intended. This is how God wanted his son to enter the world, in breathtaking humility. So he orchestrated that there would be no place at the inn. And he arranged that there would be a place on a dirty bed of hay. Surely God would have been able would have been able to provide better accommodations for his son to enter the world. Of course he could have. But that was the point. He didn't. He chose the low place. And in so doing, he chose to save lowly, dirty people like you and me. So as we'll sing, let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Let's pray. God, may we do what needs to be done. May we make room in our hearts for you this season and in the days ahead, the years ahead. Our hearts are dirty and cluttered, much like the stable that you came down to. That's where you knew you'd find us. Or may we never grow too familiar with this story that we don't grasp how awesome it is. That you would come from the heights of heaven to meet with us and to save us. May our hearts be captured anew by this wonder and may we spread the news of your love and your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.